Richard, yes, maybe this is a really silly question, but how busy are you at the moment? I would consider myself to be very hard-pressed for time, partly because we've got a book out at the moment, so I've been on book talk, I've also been to places doing that, partly because we have the great pleasure of meeting and doing our rabbit hole detectives, partly also because I've got box blight, and the box hedges in my garden have died, and so Ben and the garden, the garden my gardener guy, he's doing all the work. So there's a lot happening, plus I'm writing book three in the series, so I consider myself to be quite busy. How about you, Charles? Well, I've kept box blight at bay, <laughs> but I have just finished writing a, a book that's taken me four or five years, and I'm doing this. You know, all of us have a, a you know how much there is after you've finished a book, and also the podcast and all sorts of things back at home. So, would it be fair to say that if somebody found a way to deliver all the day's news to you in a single five-minute source-curated read from the best of the world's media, would that be helpful? Do you mean? A curated source in an easily digestible form of all the headline-making news in the world. Yes, yeah, so you don't have to go out and find it yourself, but you could just get it to you. Would that be useful? I'd love it. If possible. Yes. Well, luckily, somebody's actually found a way of doing just uh-huh. that. Do and it's tell. called The Knowledge. And The Knowledge is a free daily newsletter, and it makes the news manageable. Fill me up with knowledge. Where <laughs> so, would you find it? So you just have to sign up. It's very easy. Excellent. www.theknowledge.com forward slash rabbit hole. Well, that's good to know. Brought to you by John Connell, founder of The Week. And that gives you five minutes daily news. And that's it. The Knowledge makes news manageable. Folding Pocket. This week's episode is brought to you by Babbel. Welcome to The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. Hello again, rabbit holies. Hello, Cat. How are we all today? Doing all right, thank you very much. I'm rather enjoying the summer. Yes. yes. Well, uh, it sort of went away a bit, didn't it? It's been never a dull moment. But do you remember last year? It was just hot all the time. And after a while, yeah. it just got a bit crispy at the edges. Especially yeah. London, just baked, didn't yeah. it? But I would say, if I have something to do, like today, and you wake up and it's four in the morning and it's light, it's very hard to get back to sleep, isn't it? You just got to get up and do it. Yes. Yeah. No, I have that same problem as well. But you wander your park seeking out <laughs> Tim and his girlfriends. I do. I came across the whole posse of peacocks yesterday. Oh, sorry, the ostentation of peacocks yesterday. There were more of them than we ever had. So I don't know if they've... I think they do travel, actually. And I think he might have lured in some outliers. Where do you go? Oh, wild peacocks. You? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, we've got 10 now. We had nine before. So that's... Who's your nearest neighbour with a peacock that you know of? I don't know, but I do know they travel when they haven't settled. You know, if they haven't stopped, they will move around. They a fly bit. around. 
Well, they do fly a bit. They fly really high in the evening. Really? To get out of the way of foxes, yeah. So you've been in Bath, near Bath, Kat? Yes, I have. I'm just getting my head down, actually trying to write and finish off my next book. Which Hang is on, you've just done a book. When I'm finishing, yes, just last final edits and all the little... It's amazing bits. how much there is after you yeah. think you've finished yes. it. It's... I like that bit, though. Do you? Because yeah. I don't. Because this is when I'm thinking, I wish I'd added so many other things. Well, it doesn't matter if I make a terrible error because it's fiction. You guys got to worry about that stuff. I did exactly. the Russian translator got in touch. I should say the Russian book is not being published because of circumstances of Russia at the moment, but there is a Russian translation happening. I got a Bible quote completely wrong, and it was a <laughs> Russian translator who said, I think you'll find that's the Gospel of Luke, <laughs> not the Gospel of John. And I thought, How handy. Yeah. That's the danger. It's the stuff you think you know yes. is where you make the mistakes, isn't it? Well, you don't yeah. check it. You yeah. just, you know, that goes by on a nod. Yeah. Yeah. Was the biblical quote about the fox and the hedgehog? That wasn't from the Bible. That's Archilochus, and that's from classical antiquity. And also, Slim, occasionally one gets things back to front. Thank you. I'm very grateful for the correction. Maybe not for the sneering, scornful laugh that came with it, but the correction is always good. Yes. It's not wrong to be wrong. Right? Almost the disemboweled voice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to be not careful, that would be that. What's the worst howler you've ever made in your professional life, Kat? Well, I Nothing really that serious. Some typos were quite funny when I've, I've sort of left out the word iron sword and just put that the most sort of notorious warrior was buried with an iron. Mm, <laughs> was quite very handy around the house. In one of my first big presentations of a poster thing. I, I made a funny. really stupid one in a book about six years ago. I was walking around the Thames looking where somebody escaped after the English Civil War. And then I mentioned a bridge which hadn't been built then. But of course, I was walking it thinking, oh, well, that's interesting. They must have gone past here. But of course, the bridge was made. It was erected 200 years after my protagonist. Yeah. So today, though, I think I'm going to be starting our topics with what is, has essentially created this entire book that I've written and what's fueling me through, which is coffee, <laughs> basically, <laughs> and what I need. So I'm going to look into the, the history of coffee. There's lots of stuff I didn't know about this. And is one another one of those infuriating ones where we don't actually know all that much about the earliest origins of coffee. There's all these legends and stories and a really famous legend called the Legend of Kaldi, which is almost certainly a complete myth. And it's about the young goat herd named Kaldi who was uh, up in the mountains with his goats and noticed that they were eating these little berries off a bush and they got all excited and happy and were dancing around. He was feeling all miserable, so he decided to have some of the berries and also felt happy and bouncing about. He was then spotted by a monk who asked, you know, what was causing him to dance with his goats in such a way, uh, showed him the berries, and that's essentially the story of... Uh, was it a capuchin monk? Was it's, it a what? It's a joke, sorry. It's a good one. No, it's, if, it, if it's not obvious, it's not a good one. <laughs> we got it. In Thank you. Yeah. You just didn't smile. <laughs> We're serious here. We're not... No, not, not frivolous. No. Anyway, so this story, which is probably certainly a myth because it exists in lots of different stories in different countries. Uh, what does seem to be known is that it originates somewhere around Ethiopia, probably into the southeast of the capital of Ethiopia, in the mountains, in the forests, in that part of the world. First reference, it seems to be sort of 9th, 10th century. There's some Arabic and Persian scholars who describe drinks that seem to be coffee. We don't quite know. And then 
then it's really the Indian Ocean trading networks taking it from Africa up to the Arabic Peninsula. And I didn't know any of this. Oh, I thought it was South America. No, yeah, it's not at all. So it starts very much in the Arabic world at this yeah. point in time. And the name as well seems to come from an origin of Kuwa, Q-U-H-W-A, which is the Arabic word for a brew. And that was the first sort of drink that was being made. So the word coffee entered the English language in 1582, so quite late. And it came from the Dutch word coffee. And that again came from Turkish kava, which comes from that Arabic word. And it's interesting because that actually also maps the spread of it. So we have the starting point in the Arabic world. We have a reliable reference in 1454, where the Mufti of Aden, who's the sort of Muslim legal expert, imported goods from Ethiopia to Yemen. He was very familiar with the drink from Ethiopia. And when he got back to Yemen, he was ill. He'd seen all these people drinking this drink and, and wrote to ask for it to be sent to him because apparently it had medicinal powers as well. Apparently drank it, felt much better and realised he could stay awake. So he also recommended it to be used by uh, dervishes. For whirling. Needed, yes, whirling dervishes who needed to be very energetic and dancing in their prayers and their ritual behaviour. And from this sort of early point in the 15th century, it's actually quite a lot of a, a religious drink. And so it's got lots of religious connotations. There's use so that you can stay devout, you can stay awake and you can pray and, you know, whatever energy you need. So I had this idea, Kat, that it was used in my own religion or something, but I'm completely wrong about that. They were using psychoactive stuff, but it wasn't coffee. No, so coffee, oh. coffee really originates in the African-Arabian Peninsula and that's where it starts. It doesn't spread to the New World until much later. Yeah. And what's really interesting is that it becomes very, very popular in Mecca. And that's where the earliest coffee houses start. And the coffee house becomes, you know, the big key, really. And they become places where people gather. They drink this really nice energetic drink. There's games, singing, dancing. That doesn't go down very well with the Muslim authorities because there's lots of behavior that isn't, you know, shouldn't really be doing all of this. So it really starts just centuries of people trying to ban coffee and coffee houses. First ban comes in 1511. The governor of Mecca really dislikes what's going on in these coffee houses. So he says, no, no, no more of that. Keeps on being overturned by the people going, no, this is a brilliant drink because it keeps you awake. It then goes across to Constantinople and Turkish coffee really becomes a huge thing. Again, coffee houses spring up. And one of the keys really is that it was a popular drink with all the different classes. So unlike so many of the other commodities, it's not an upper class thing. It's not sort of special. It's very much for everyone. Coffee houses, again, are hugely popular. These wonderfully decorated places. And then it's really in the 17th century that it starts to travel to Europe, probably via Venice, first of all. So it goes to Italy, the Italians obviously loving their coffee, and it goes to Paris. And various Europeans write about it, they discover it in the Middle East. And yeah, and that's sort of the start of this coffee house. And I think what's so interesting in all these locations is that the coffee house is something very different from tavern or you know what becomes pubs later on because they're very much filled with alcohol but actually in muslim world obviously you don't want to drink alcohol so you have something else that you can meet and gather 
they're not linked to any religious authorities. So they're not secular. They don't have, you know, it's not like a, a church or anything like that. People can meet from all different parts of society. And that's really the key. And they come to England in the 17th century. Oxford has the first of them, in Very fact. Good. And again, it's this sort of meeting, sitting there talking, and it comes at a, a time where that sort of social context is really important and also lots of politics being discussed. Some of them become known as penny universities, actually. <laughs> That's lovely. Great. Yeah, yeah, because you can actually have, you know, pay a penny for a cup of coffee and learn things. They become centres of, of news and actually various periodicals are actually founded pretty much in coffee houses. Samuel Pepys gets lots of his stories and, and knowledge from the coffee houses. The Tatler and Spectator were founded in 1709 and 1711. And apparently collecting stories from coffee shops. So what, eavesdropping or well, interviewing? No, just talking to the stories that are being told. Mm. And these periodicals have been described as the coffee house put on paper. It's so interesting, isn't it, that it's different intoxicants produce different effects. So if yes. you went to the tavern, a brawl, perhaps would be what come up with. But if you went to a coffee shop, everyone's full of beans, aren't they? And thoughtful and articulate perhaps yeah yes. and it's becoming in the sort of early enlightenment as well so people are interested in sharing knowledge they're not interested in just sort of getting more and more drunk i like the <laughs> classlessness thing too because i imagine if you were well to do you wouldn't risk it in a tavern for the reasons richard's touched on but coffee it's fine isn't it you're not going to get someone drunk and obnoxious in your face you're just going to have lots of very upbeat people you might get a pungent whiggish opinion but that's okay, isn't it? Yes. Very much up my street. <laughs> <laughs> there are places where people talk and discuss business as well. So it's, yeah. it's sort of serving a new purpose. This wasn't really something you had before. Do you know you why it was visit. Oxford though, Kat? Is it just it had to start somewhere? It seems to be possibly linked to the universities, I think. Yeah. The fact that Cavalier. you've got that sort of yeah. context. And the first London one is established in 1652 by somebody called Pasqua Rosi or Rose, who was an Armenian-born servant of a British merchant named Daniel Edwards. And he took Pasqua back with him. And apparently the story goes that Edwards was getting fed up with having entertaining people at his house. So he sent them to Pasqua's stall where he could serve coffee to people in St. Michael's Alley and quite conveniently was near the Royal Exchange Centre of Commerce as well. So you have all these London merchants being able to meet and talk business. Do we know how they prepared it? Possibly. I mean, but, but, but I mean, just today, obviously it was roast, obviously, yeah. and then ground. How do you know. have it, Richard, in the morning at home? How would you do it? Huge controversy. <laughs> so I have a sort of half-sized cafetiere. Yes. Because I can just about cope with that. Because I get up early, right, and I'm stumbling around. I also got a sort of coffee maker thing. And sometimes I will treat myself, if I have a guest, I'll treat them to a proper coffee but it's a bit of a palaver to be honest but then i have my friend came to stay who lives in spain who has one of those screw together aluminium jobs that's what i have yeah well he's actually he's actually the only way to have coffee he just it's fantastic mocks me for having coffee in any other way so my mother and stepfather used to have that so i think it's partly what you grow up with isn't it and i don't like the machines where you just pop in a pod and all that it just doesn't taste right it's the ritual in the morning and the smell is stronger i find mm. and it's just I don't even always drink it. It's just a nice thing to have in the room. <laughs> I was surprised when I first went to Scandinavia about how much coffee was drunk there. Yes. So much coffee. Yeah. Yes, I think we are some of the, the highest consumers of coffee But isn't in the part world, of that actually. because famously alcohol is so exorbitantly expensive and you've got to get a stimulant somewhere. 
I'm sure that's part of it as well. And obviously in the winter, it's so dark and miserable. Yes. You need something to actually perk you up. <laughs> but people don't really have milk, so it's just black coffee yeah. as well. And then in the, in the north, in a lot of places, mix it with moonshine as well, alcohol. So you have this pretty wow. horrendous where you have a cup of, so that the way uh, apparently you do it is you have a, a cup of coffee, you fill it halfway with coffee, and then you put a coin into it and then you pour enough moonshine on the top till you can see the coin. Shut that's, up. That's really? the well, I have to say, my house burnt down in South Africa about 20 years ago. And I went to a friend of mine who had a, a vineyard just outside in Cape Town in Stellenbosch. He said, I hear you've had a disaster. And I said, yes. I, mean, I was still in the clothes smelling of smoke. And he passed me the perfect antidote, which was a triple espresso with equal parts grappa. Oh, what a brilliant idea. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. In Valencia, a city I know well and love very much, they have this thing, it's, a, it's local people, it's called cremaet, and you have it usually at the end of a meal, and it is densely, densely rich, thick espresso mm. with a sort of creamy thing and a sort of sugary thing and a kind of rummy thing. So it's sort of stripy and yes. sweet and layered. It's absolutely delicious, and you would drink it very happily in Valencia. Yes. And you wouldn't even think of drinking it anywhere else. Difficult to pick my favourite fact, but I did think this one was quite funny. We were just talking about machines, coffee machines and coffee makers. Mm, yeah. The most interesting one of those probably is the espresso or ISS-presso, oh. which is a specially designed Italian coffee maker for use in space. On the International Space Station. Thank God. Because obviously you can't just have <laughs> can't sort of pattern. Well, yeah, or the you know instant coffee mm. thing, which is no good. So in 2015, this espresso machine was launched up to the ISS, so they wouldn't have to have freeze dried coffee anymore. So <laughs> and it's really quite it's interesting because actually it's quite <laughs> difficult to make decent coffee in space. Of course, you haven't got all the pressure. You have to work out what to do with the hot water so that mm -hmm. the bubbles don't just mm -hmm. go everywhere little bubbles flying through space. Um, Zero gravity coffee. Yeah. Mm. They've got these sort of capsule type things, pouches for the water, gets it up to 75 degrees Celsius and replicates the water pressure on Earth. And then it sort of comes out into a little pouch at the end and apparently needs to be strapped to the wall with sort of bungee cords. That's <laughs> Genius. Well, well but, you know. the essentials. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was in the wilds of Sindh, northwest India, Pakistan border. And I was traveling with people. We were on this bus. We were like a really long way from anywhere where the normal things you would expect to find in somewhere like London would happen. And there was a chai cellar, a little chai cellar sitting cross-legged at the side of the road, boiling up some water and everything. And we stop! There was a queue of 12 people saying to him, <laughs> can I have a skinny macchiato with a dash on the side? <laughs> it's not that. It's not that. It's like we couldn't survive without a complicated order of Americano with a skinny dash, you know, mm. cold on the side. Come on. But that's the addictive bit, isn't it? Yes. It is addictive. I've seen people come off coffee and they get incredibly ill. How much yeah. do you drink? I have two cups in the morning probably on average. And I, I can't have it within 12 hours of going to sleep because it keeps me awake. I, I've got very low tolerance. What about you? Half a cafeteria in the morning and then I go and have a coffee in the coffee shop around the corner yeah. and a toasted tea cake and talk to Julie about physiotherapy. <laughs> and Cat, then... do you? I have way too much. I probably have about five cups at least in the morning mm. but I also like you get very affected by it so I try mm. to just have decaf or, or not mm -hmm. in the afternoon mm -hmm. because I, I think just... I have way too much and I'm sure it must be after years and years and years of protracted use of high caffeine intoxicant it must have its effect surely yeah I'm sure it does because you don't yeah. sleep very well I know that. oh terribly yeah. yeah I mean I would never have done though 
Don't do sleep. <laughs> so, Richard. Yes. I think we're going to go on to you next. And you, this week, have been researching a place that all of us, I think, have been to on lots of places, know about for different reasons, and that's Westminster Abbey. Yes. Very glad you mentioned Samuel Pepys, ah. because he plays a part in my tale. It's 1669. It is Shrove Tuesday. Samuel Pepys celebrates his 36th birthday, perhaps with an enormous mug of coffee, <laughs> because he trips along to Westminster Abbey full of beans. They're renovating the tomb of Henry V in the Henry VII Chapel at the east end of the Abbey, and Pepys goes along to have a look. They lift the lid of the tomb and reveal the body of Catherine of Valois, Henry V's wife, who died in 1437. What did Samuel Pepys do? He leant into the coffin and kissed her and said, on my 36th birthday, I shall kiss a queen. And so he did. Don't try this at home, people, because she had been dead for like 250 years. Not great. Some people describe Westminster Abbey as England's Valhalla, Britain's Valhalla, in fact, you might say. It's the place where we deposit the remains of the great and the good. Initially, the first one, the person responsible for it was Edward the Confessor. Now, there's a story about this. Some people say that St. Peter appeared to a fisherman on what was called Thorny Island. And it was a scrubby little island in the Thames. And said, build an abbey. And the fisherman duly obliged. For that reason, on St. Peter's Day, June the 29th, the fishmonger's company present a salmon to the dean and chapter of Westminster Abbey, commemorating that. Probably it was more likely Edward the Confessor did a deal with the Pope. He couldn't get to Rome, so the Pope said, look, build a monastery. So he did. And a palace thereby. And that was the origins of Westminster Abbey. Some people think it's a cathedral. It was a cathedral for 10 years, but we'll get to that in a minute. It was built originally as a monastery for Benedictine monks. Edward the Confessor died and was buried there. And it's very unusual. It's a, it survived the Reformation as a historic church with the intact body of king slash saint within. And you'll remember, perhaps if you were watching the coronation, the most sacred parts of that ceremony are conducted in proximity to the tomb of Edward the Confessor. Some memory there of a sort of pre-Reformation idea of being close to holiness. Perhaps that was in Samuel Pepys' mind when he leant forward to kiss the decaying lips of Catherine of Valois. Who knows? <laughs> because of that, the association then grew up with kings. So every king and Queen Renant has been crowned in Westminster Abbey since 1066, apart from Edward V, never got a chance, Edward VIII, there's another one, is there? Do you know? Uh, Lady Jane Grey. Lady Jane Grey, that's right, because they were unfortunately unable to meet that commitment. <laughs> Indisposed. <Yeah. laughs> Due to, <laughs> or to force majeure, yes. you might say. But every, and we've just witnessed it, of course. Extraordinary thing. You watch the coronation of King Charles III and you are watching something some form like that has been going on since 1066. Got zhushed up over the years. Henry III came along, and lots of what you see now, that weirdly sort of French Gothic-looking building at the heart of the English state was really the work of, of Henry III, or rather the masons of Henry III. And then it got kind of added to interesting anomalies with it. It's got very large transepts, and the transepts are level with the crossing. Why would you do that? Well, you'd know if you were watching the coronation of King Charles III, people need to see. If it's a church where your monarch is crowned, you need to get people to see it. So they built the transepts are big, so you get a big crowd in them, and also in line with the crossing, so you could see that 
the Cosmati pavement in Westminster Abbey. You've seen it, Charles. You've probably walked. I don't know if you've been there. But in that bit, the bit where the coronation actually takes place, the Cosmati pavement is laid with using these, I think, like 90,000 coloured bits of stone and tile and stuff, the Cosmati brothers of Italy, 13th century. And it's this extraordinarily intricate pattern which is supposed to tell us things about what's happening here, the union of heaven and earth, that meeting in the person of the monarch, the sovereign anointed by God and also of the people. It all tells the story. The Cosmatic Pavement, where else do we see it? In Holbein's The Ambassadors. Oh my goodness, yes. That painting full yes. of symbolism and puzzles and things. Well, they, they stand on the Cosmatic Pavement in that painting. The Oculus, which is the very middle bit, is the bit on which the throne is placed and upon that throne the sovereign sits and he's got also with the stone of schoon content a little bit complicated this stone of schoon the stone of destiny kept at schoon abbey i think it was until 1296 when edward longshanks on one of his various expeditions conquering everybody removed it and it came to westminster abbey and every monarch has been crowned on it since then interestingly stolen from the abbey in 1950 by four students from glasgow university Do you know about that no never mm. heard of that so there is the stone of destiny is kept there in a little sort of shelf underneath the coronation chair it's actually called and then on christmas day in 1950 they were uh, belonged to the covenant which was of people who thought there should be devolved powers in scotland related to independence but not quite the same thing and they thought for a kind of jape they would nick it so they cleverly got in Story goes, of course, that they removed it with such vigour that it broke in half and it didn't rebreak. But, you know, that's not how the Stone of Destiny broke in half. Do you know how they think it did? But the suffragettes. Oh. Did you know the suffragettes bombed Westminster Abbey in 1914? I had no idea. Well, I know about this either. But the suffragettes mm -hmm. had a bombing campaign, an arson campaign, described themselves as terrorists and were indeed prosecuted for terrorist offences. They didn't quite call it that then. But they had fellow travellers who made up gelignite bombs for them. And one bomb detonated in Westminster Abbey while they were tourists in there, about 100 people in there at the time. And they think that that's actually, if it didn't break the Stone of Destiny, it certainly damaged it seriously. Mm. So they nicked it. They drove it away in two pieces in Fort Anglias, but it was so heavy <laughs> that the pathetic suspension on the Fort Anglias didn't work very well. And one of them was left in a field near Rugby. And eventually they got it up to Scotland. They got a stonemason to put it back together again. And they left it on the altar at Arbroath Abbey, you know, Arbroath Declaration, that great statement of Scottish aspiration to independence. And eventually it was taken down to Westminster Abbey again. Then, of course, in 1996, I think it was, John Major um, sent it back up to Scotland. And then it's been up and down ever since it came down, of course, to the king's coronation. So that sits in the throne. Hmm. When you see the, the, the coronation chair itself, it's this hacked up old bit. It used to be gilded, but that's all come off because you rubbed it for one thing or another. Carved with the initials of the scholars of Westminster School. Who've been, there's one, 1800, I can't remember his name, but he slept in it overnight. So he's the person who's had the longest occupancy of the coronation chair. <laughs> it's this Westminster boy who slept that's in it good. in 1800. <laughs> and of course, around it, I don't know, it's a sort of pageant of English history in the dead. It is a place that Washington Irving described it as a place of death, and indeed it is. Heartbreakingly, Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots, united in death in the Henry VII chapel. Mm. Henry VII chapel, beautiful tomb to Henry VII, made by a Spanish sculptor. You'll help me out here, just a bit. I think it was Torrigiano. But Torrigiano ended up in England. Do you know why? No. Because he had a fight with Michelangelo and broke his nose. <laughs> that's so anyway, fantastic. That's the reason why he did up <laughs> Henry VII's 
tomb. And around that, you've got Henry V, you've got all sorts of kings and queens. Last one to be buried, there was George II, I think, and thereafter Windsor or Frogmore. With so, tradition Richard, when did it become a place of um, national celebrity for authors and poets? Well, and it such. kind of crept up on people. I mean, Chaucer, of course, in Poets' Corner, went in in the 14th century. Yes. But Chaucer went in because he was actually an officer of the crown, not because of his distinction as an artist. Full of wonderful, wonderful things. You've got monuments there for, I mean, the scientists, for example. Isaac Newton, I think, was the first scientist, really, to be buried there. Stephen Hawking was mm, the last. Of course, yeah. yes, I remember that. Poets galore, of course, Shakespeare, because mm -hmm. he went up to Stratford-upon-Avon. Ben Jonson is there. Some <laughs> awkward moments, in 1907, I think it was, Mrs. Burdick Coots, who was a great philanthropist, was expected for burial. Her ashes were expected, but unfortunately there was a mix-up and they sent her entire body instead. So they had to bury her standing up. Oh, um, and same with Ben Johnson. Really. Well, space is limited. Yes. You think about it, you are England, you know, Britain's Valhalla. Yes. It's absolutely full. You've got admirals, you've got generals, you've got poets, you've got artists, you've got... It's ashes now. Dickens didn't want to be buried there. Quite often, people ended up getting buried there because the nation decides that they merit it, even though they might not want. Dickens wanted to go to Rochester Cathedral, oh, local yeah. boy. Didn't get that wish. Darwin is buried there. Of course, some people might think, Darwin, what's he doing in a great church? Well, the dean of Westminster will tell you that it doesn't really matter whether you're signed up to this program or not. The nation wishes to acknowledge your contribution to our life mm. in that way. I could go on. I'm not going to, but I can tell you my favourite fact. <laughs> oh, yes, please. Westminster Abbey has the oldest working door in England. Oh, that's wonderful. It's a door from one of the cloisters to the chapter house. You know about this. I did. I was about to say it. So ah. I'm glad I didn't. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, because you know better than me. It's a rough-hewn door made from five planks of oak. The door dates to 1050. The oak it was made from, they did some dendrochronology, as it was called, mm -hmm. and they figured out that it was growing in Hainault a thousand years ago. That's amazing. still in use today, but maybe you can correct because I th that's slightly anecdotal, I think. Do you know better than that, Kat? I don't actually know the precise details, but that sounds about right. But it's definitely, yeah, the oldest door, definitely Anglo Saxon period, and it's remarkable. And it probably had been in the place because we do have some archaeological evidence for that early monastery and that site. Not a lot, but yeah. certainly some of it. And yeah. it's incredible. Well, and also, my friend Bob, who was a canon of Westminster, just used it every day and yes. he sort of showed it to me. So, by the way, this is the oldest door in England. Very serviceable piece of yeah. furniture. I job. love those things. Though. And there's a church near us in Warwickshire with the oldest pair of spectacles carved into the woodwork there. And really? One of the, above the pew. It's a man wearing spectacles from I, whenever it is, 1200 or something. Well, in the village of Little Cransley in Northamptonshire, you'll find the only depiction in stained glass of somebody smoking. That's amazing. Yeah. Churchill. Oh, it's a memorial yes. window to the Second World War and Churchill has a cigar. Yeah. Excellent. So I, I'm, I'm reluctant to say this because it sounds like a sort of massive boast, but it's nothing to do with me. But I was actually christened in Westminster Abbey, not because of me or my family, but because the Queen was kind enough to stand as one of my godparents and it was convenient for her. Handy for her. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so did you get a birthday card from the Queen? Yes. And the best present I ever got from her was when I was at boarding school and it was quite a tough boarding school. I got from her a very small radio that looked like a book. So I could sneak it up to my dormitory and listen to it under my pillow to Radio Luxembourg. What an amazingly thoughtful that. present. It's brilliant, isn't it? That's what, great. Does it say to Charles love from? For, uh, from his godmother, Elizabeth R. Oh, really? Yeah. And you've got christened in Westminster Abbey, yeah. surrounded by... The first full-length portrait 
of an English sovereign, Richard II. Oh, and also, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Thanks to an army padre who in 1920 thought he'd been through the First World War, we need to commemorate mm. the anonymous, the lost, not just the great and the good. And so... The unknown soldier was exhumed from a battlefield. They knew that he was a British soldier, they didn't know anything more about that, and was buried in Westminster Abbey. And the mm. first royal bride to leave her bouquet on it was the Queen Mother, Elizabeth Bowes-Lyon, when she married the Duke of York, later George VI, in memory of her brother Fergus, I think he yes, was killed in the first war. Yes, absolutely right. Well, the padre, who, as I hear it was, died because he fell off a moving train somewhere between Battle and East Sussex and Inverness Shire. And his daughter went on to found the National Youth Orchestra. It all joins up. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I think we've got a comment as well here from our disembodied voice. Just confirmation, Richard. Yes, Pietro Torrigiano was a sculptor that you talked about who broke Michelangelo's nose. Uh, excuse my pedantry, but the four Glasgow students who stole the Stone of Destiny did so on Christmas Eve. 1950 rather than Christmas Day. Beg your pardon. Uh, and it's the oldest door in Britain rather than the oldest door in England. The wood felled after 1032 AD, according to the Westminster Abbey themselves, and the door was constructed sometime in the 1050s. There you go. Yeah. Unusually accurate for me. Yeah, that was very impressive. <laughs> <Pretty>. <laughs> yeah. With no notes or anything. I know. I get annoyed. At it's all, all the co well, it's coffee. You know, yeah, that's <laughs> true. That's true. Full we need yes, some more exactly coffee. Like the Delphic Oracle. You're yeah. <laughs> on fumes. Speedy. Yeah. Maybe that's what kept the Sybil going was, you know, yeah. Macchiato. A nice cuppa. Okay, so that leads us to the final topic this week. And I'm a little bit sort of concerned that we're going to need this if we get too competitive about <laughs> the winners and the scoring later on. But yeah, so your topic is another one suggested by one of our listeners, Felicity Neal. And it is dueling. This absolutely bounced out towards me because it's just so fascinating. This ritualized contest, often to the death. It's a very strange form of human score settling. And that the first time I come across it when I when I was researching was actually a legend. And it goes back to the writings of Livy, I think seventh century BC, triplets from Rome, the Horatii brothers. And they were asked by Rome to take part in a duel against three brothers from the nearby city of Alba Longa. So this is way back before Rome is Rome as we understand it. It's just a, a city that's establishing itself in the Italian peninsula. And neither side, neither Alba Longa or Rome, wanted to ruin their armies in a battle which might leave them vulnerable to the Etruscans who were waiting on the sidelines. So they decided to elect three brothers from each side to fight. And whoever won, won the whole battle. And the Horatii took on the Curiatii. And it was a very nasty fight because you are fighting for your city-state, as it were. Yeah. And essentially what happened after a, a lot of vicious fighting, two of the Horatii were dead and all three of the Curiatii were wounded. And the one surviving Horatii decided that he couldn't possibly beat them standing there because even though they were wounded, there were three of them. So he did something incredibly clever. He ran away from them and they chased him. And one was severely wounded, one was lightly wounded, and one was barely wounded. And he picked them off one by one. So when he got a fair distance away, the two who were more wounded couldn't get near him. So he knocked off the first one, oh. then went back and took out the second one and then killed the third. And the man in charge of Alba Longa conceded. And so Rome won 
Alba Longa through the battle of three against three. Mm. And I think that's rather neat. I mean, it all ends disastrously, I hasten to add, because when the surviving Horatii got back to Rome, his sister burst into tears because she had been betrothed to one of the fallen men from the other side, and she wailed about it, and he murdered his own sister because she was disloyal. (laughs) (laughs) And so he went from being this unbelievable hero of Rome to somebody guilty of not just murder, but murder of his own sister. And it was only his and her father, Horatio Senior, who managed to spare his life. So anyway, an early duel. It becomes a much more of a, a European thing from the Middle Ages. Essentially, if somebody accused you of something, some terrible misconduct, you had the right to enter a one-to-one fight with them to sort it out because there was such confidence that God would see that the righteous party won that that was how it was settled. People by combat. Yes, they really believed. I mean, I look at you, Vicar, but to my mind, it's extraordinary that you really do think God's going to sort it out from above, but they really did. And you find that this practice was brought into the British Isles by William the Conqueror after 1066, this trial by combat. But it didn't really settle here as a a concept that the church liked. And about 1215, actually the year of Magna Carta, but entirely separately, the church decided to disallow it. It wasn't something they wanted to encourage at all. We think it probably all started in Italy in the Middle Ages. It started to proliferate across Europe and reached its peak in the 18th century in England. And a code was drawn up in the 1770s, which had 25 rules. If somebody wanted to have a duel with you, there were rules to be adhered to. Who made the rules? It was called the Irish Code of Duello. We do know later on there was a a general in America who took it on, but the original one of 1772 had all these rules. And rule 16 was that the person who was challenged to a duel could choose both the weapon and where to fight. And because it was only semi-legal or sometimes illegal to fight, you'd have to find somewhere away from the crowds, away from any form of law. But at the same time, it became customary to have a second present, I think for moral reinforcement. Free Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) But also there was the idea that it should be an ordered process. I mean, obviously to our minds, the whole thing is barbaric. But before you started to regulate it in this way, you had the possibility of somebody being ambushed and bumped off before it could actually happen properly. You also needed somebody there who could act as a witness to say, actually, it was all done fairly and squarely. And also, quite often, they would have medical assistance nearby because not all of these fights were fights to the death. They were points of honour usually. And sometimes honour could be satisfied before death was reached. Our disembodied voice has a comment. Uh, You mentioned about uh, Code Duello. It was established at the Clonmel Summer Assizes of 1777. The codes were developed for the government of duelists by the gentlemen of Tipperary, Galway, Mayo, Sligo and Roscommon, prescribed for general adoption throughout Ireland. Hmm. That's fascinating. So if you were using duelling pistols and you got lucky and you hit someone, that would be considered a win. And you wouldn't necessarily watch them bleed to death. You just the surgeon would come, wouldn't he? And he'd patch you up and maybe you'd survive and go home. Well, it's a very good question. So essentially, the pistol was the standard dueling object once they were sort of a standardised part of a gentleman's armoury. 
they're incredibly inaccurate. Mm. Quite often, you know, you take eight paces or you'd be just a very short distance apart. And the idea was that there would be a countdown. You had to really be sure of your rules <laughs> as to when you're allowed to fire. So quite often it was they would say present, as in present the pistol, and you have to fire between when I count one and three. Now, it was really a deadly thing. So if somebody fired at you, the other person, if you, if you miss, they had all the time in the world to fire back because that was the way they did it. There were still very clear rules on this. So the future President Jackson was known as this incredibly effective, the American President Jackson, was known as a very effective duelist. But he, he essentially blew his reputation for honour by breaking an absolutely cardinal rule. Somebody fired at him and lightly wounded him with the pistol. And he pulled the trigger and it just went click. And that was the end. That's the rules. You only get one shot. But he pulled the hammer back and killed his opponent. And that was a real big black mark against him because he weren't allowed to do like that. Australian wicket-keeping, for example. <laughs> yes. But also, if I'm touching on the American duels, I suppose the most famous one of all is Hamilton. Yeah. And there's still this great query, was Hamilton always going to shoot? So for those who don't, haven't been to the musical, which must be very few people, or know the story, Hamilton essentially goes into a duel with the vice president. And the vice president fires and hits Hamilton. And Hamilton is then seen as gentlemanly firing into the tree above. But it was quite clear that he probably was in agony yeah. and just released the pistol without knowing it. Because we know that when he was in lying there mortally wounded, he said to the people with him, watch out because the pistol's still loaded. So he didn't probably know that it had gone off. Because he was in shock. He was in shock. But do you know, I, I know this is a very obvious point, but it was extremely agonizing. He was hit just above the hip on, on the right side. And he could not believe the agony. And this is what you hear from the, the lips of these incredibly brave men, often, I mean, military men, when they hit, they cannot believe it. And also, the ones who were mortally wounded seem to have known they were mortally wounded. They say, I'm done for, I'm dead, I'm going to die. And quite often they did these, they performed these duels without letting their families know. And they'd be taken home and they'd make sure if they were still conscious that their wife or children didn't see them in this final agony. But it was a brutal thing. It was a great boon for romantic literature and opera, wasn't it? I mean, there's so many wonderful scenes of duelists. Yes. Mm. Well, you're absolutely right. And of course, that fed the appetite for it. I mean, in the very late 18th century and up till the American Civil War in, in the 1860s, the American Navy lost two thirds of the number of officers to duels as they did in combat. So of course, you know, you can get you get these governments being absolutely rigidly against duels, said it's a disastrous idea, it's costing us manpower. But people went ahead. And part of the problem is Sir Walter Scott. Uh -huh. So Sir Walter Scott saw this as a great chivalric thing and you must rise as a gentleman to defend your honour, etc. And this had a particular resonance in what we consider the deep south of America. They really bought into that chivalric idea. So even when it started to die out in the 1840s and 50s in the north, it still had a, a home in, in the south. We lost some great talent to duelling, didn't we? I mean, didn't Pushkin die in a duel? Pushkin did. Wellington could have. 
he was in a duel as a 50-year-old senior politician. Really? He was challenged by the Earl of, is it Winchelsea or Winchelsea? Anyway, mm-hmm. Winchelsea hadn't quite grabbed the fact that Wellington was anti-Catholic and thought he was pro-Catholic. So it took him on in a, well, in fact, Wellington took him on in a duel. And um, they both managed to miss each other and all honour was settled. In the 1840s, Abraham Lincoln was involved in a duel. Very clever man. He was challenged to a duel. He wrote a defamatory piece in a magazine about a political rival. And the political rival challenged him to a duel. So as I mentioned earlier, Abraham Lincoln could choose how the duel was going to be. And he insisted that there must be a 10-foot plank between the two of them. And also they use, must use broadswords. And his thinking was that Abraham Lincoln, I didn't know, was a strapping six foot four, and his opponent was five foot nine. And he thought, I'll have the I'll have the advantage if there's ten foot between us. And if you went between that ten foot plank during the fight, then you forfeited your life. Anyway, luckily, possibly America's greatest president was saved by a mutual friend begging them to see sense and not fight each other. But it is amazing that the moral pressure. So going back to South of United States, as we call it now, if you didn't rise to the occasion, if you ducked the duel, your name would be publicly written up as a coward. Yes. Well, I think I'd prefer that to being <laughs> shot or butchered. <laughs> become, become I'm a lover of a fight. Right? Yeah. yeah. My favourite, can I say, have you seen the photographs of the Heidelberg duelists? No. Oh, amazing. There's a suite of photographs that were taken, I guess, 1900, maybe the late 1890s, because the University of Heidelberg students traditionally dueled. And, you know, you would have your dueling scarves, so Germans of a certain... that was a big thing, yes. They would have a... The scarves were enormous. Their faces were half carved off. But that was a sign of immense masculinity and bravery. It was a a plus. (laughs) It looked like someone had had some sort of terrible facial cancer or something, and yet they proudly boasted these disfigured faces as signs of their amazing bravery. In India, in ancient India, they used to have these duels for the sort of warrior class. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, and forgive me if I'm not, but it's called something like the Nayuda. And if you were an ancient warrior or aristocrat, it was very shameful to just die peacefully in bed. Mm. So you would challenge someone to a duel. So you died in a fighting mode. Mm. And that was considered very good. Don't get ideas, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> but what I really enjoyed, there's, there's a French one I really enjoyed. In 1808, these two men fell out over a mistress. Incredibly French thing to do. And they decided to have a duel while in balloons in 1808. <laughs> and so they took blunderbusses up into the air because it was thought very elegant, you know, using the latest technology, a balloon. And the first person who fired missed, and the second one popped the balloon and his uh, opponent was duly shattered. <laughs> but what an amazing way to yeah. finish someone. And the French, them. you know, they are quite good at this. Another one, these two young men had a, a disagreement while they're playing billiards, and one challenged the other. And so he said, we will have a duel with billiard balls. Oh. And he got first strike, and he did lots of pretend throws, waited till the man had sort of given up ducking, and killed him with a billiard ball. That's well, the, the billiard ball was a favourite weapon in prison, actually. So if you wanted to really cause some damage to um, somebody in prison, an inmate would take billiard balls and wrap them in a sock and whack them with that, and you could do a lot of damage oh, to somebody with that. Imagine. Do you have a favourite fact? To I, have, I have my favourite fact of all time, actually. Oh, <laughs> wow. Which is that in 1862, Otto von Bismarck, the minister president of Germany, actually he loved a duel, but he chose to challenge a man who was a very good politician and also a physician, the father of modern pathology, called Rudolf Virchow. He challenged him to a duel for daring to doubt his integrity. 
And Virkov chose sausages as the dueling weapon. <laughs> and essentially, one was laced with a particularly a fatal worm, and the other was clean. And he said to the, the president, you choose. One of us is going to die. And von Bismarck thought this was absolutely absurd and ducked the duel, which was very clever because he would probably have won. But duel by sausage is just brilliant. <laughs> There's nothing worse. <laughs> oh, well done. Very, very, very And can I say it was in Frankfurt that the duel... Oh, yeah. Even better. Yeah. Do you Love have it. any ancestors who dueled that you know of? Oh, that's such a good... I have to say, I interestingly, yes. There was a, an ancestor of mine called Sir Robert Spencer in the 1800s who my family mourned because they got this dispatch. He was a naval officer that he had been killed in a duel with his second officer. And it turned out not to be true at all. And they celebrated like mad. But he died on the way home from some disease he picked up in Egypt. So oh. it didn't, I mean, it's rather, but yes. So he didn't have a duel. But not a noble death. But the, you see, I would quite like to, if I had to die, Mm. To die in a duel, I wouldn't mind that. A noble death, I'd have thought. I think quite a long death. It's very unlikely with a pistol. That There was one man who was a very accurate shot who could kill people at 100 paces. Really? With one of those pistols, incredible. Mm. And essentially, he became tormented by how many people he killed and finished his own life by turning that pistol on himself. Oh, well, maybe not. Then. Yeah. There's not really an upside to it. I'm just worrying when you get to the end of your own life, Giles, I think the appropriate death for you might be <laughs> a duel. I just said, Kat's probably better qualified than I am yes. as an opponent because of all her Viking knowledge, you see. Well, well I do I, have my sword. And the mattock. So. She's lethal with a mattock. That's and you true. have a sword. That's true, I have a sword. I have a Viking sword at home. Come on. I'd be so useless. I'll come along. I'll be your second or maybe third. Oh, the, the Vikings, <laughs> so they had a shield bearer because you got three shields. So you can be my shield bearer. I'll definitely be so your like shield bearer. So like once, you know, might manage to get one of my shields. So you can <laughs> give me the next one and then be finish It'd be a great last episode, wouldn't it? Would be, that's the way to go. Yeah. Our disembodied voice has a comment for us. Uh, Alexander McClung was the sharpshooter who... Uh, who killed opponents at over 100 feet, and the last man he killed with a pistol was himself. So, let's see if we're going to need a duel at the end <laughs> of this. Way a three-way duel. A three-way duel. Four-way, because we have to fight the disembodied voice, <laughs> yeah. because he's going to undemocratically, apparently, choose our winner this patience. week. He's playing Look at him. Mm. He's not even looking at us. He's just got some video game up on his screen. Sorry, sorry. You're not winning. <laughs> <laughs> it's Cat. Well done, Cat. Thank you. Very nice. Well, very good. Back to the coffee I, then. That, after my that. knockout fact was I just thought coffee came from South America. No. Yeah, I didn't even have time to go into that story, but that's much later. But yeah, no, it was very much a sort of Ethiopia. Ethiopia and then Arabic Blimey. world. There we go. Things you learn on this podcast. Well, you learn so much. <laughs> so before we go, we have to decide on the topics for next week. And Richard, you're going to have to explain this one, certainly to me and probably for other people as well. Polari? Polari. Gay slang. Fantastic. And Charles, you are going to be talking about defamation. Yes, a different sort of dueling, really. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> dueling by other means. Yes. Yeah. And something that might be needed at the end, I'm going to be talking about mummification. Fantastic. So there we are. That's it for this week. Please do subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps people to find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. You can also send us an email if you'd like. That's the best place to suggest a topic for us. Rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. 
And you can find us in the Daily Telegraph every Wednesday in our Rabbit Hole Detectives column discussing our favourite facts from the show. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, it's always tea time. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you.